My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Are you familiar with the phrase, touch grass? It's one of my favorite modern aphorisms. Mostly because it can be meant and taken in so many ways. You might sneer it contemptuously to someone who has gone down the conspiracy rabbit hole. Man, touch grass. Meaning get back to reality, you're sounding insane. You might say it to an extremely online friend who is neck deep in the comment section. And you might mean it the same way a mom once would have shooed her kids away from the TV and outside to play. Come on, man. Put the phone down. Let's go touch grass. And and this one is the point today. You might say it with concern to someone you know who seems isolated and lonely, the way the modern world can leave so many of us. Hey, Have you touched grass lately? Have you grounded yourself in real life? Have you done real things? Have you been with real people? And often, the answer is no. So often, in fact, the research now shows many people struggle with isolation and loneliness that affect them as real health issues. Not so different from the kind you would see a doctor for and leave with a prescription. Now, if only, if only we could prescribe something to connect someone with their community, to center them back among the people and the places and the activities that can make them feel alive and happy and meaningful. Now that would be a hell of a drug, right? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is the big story. Sonia Shung is the Director of Community Health and the Canadian Institute for Social Prescribing, which is an initiative of the Canadian Red Cross. Hello, Sonia. Hello, Jordan. I might have touched on it in the intro a bit, but why don't you just start by by telling us what the Canadian Institute for Social Prescribing is? What does it do? So the Canadian Institute for Social Prescribing, which is anchored at the Canadian Red Cross and receives financial support from the Public Health Agency of Canada and a private funder, we aim to be a national hub that connects people, connects practitioners to build bridges between health and social care so that we can elevate the importance of community and community supports to health to shift our understanding of health and our systems from this illness treatment model to one that actively builds resilience and well-being through social prescribing. Okay, so uh, that was a great elevator pitch for the organization, but what is what is social prescribing? As a movement, as a practice, what is it? Well, so we know that medical care only accounts for about 20% of our health. It's so social connectedness, our caregiving responsibilities, our level of physical activity, 
our eating habits, our education, our employment, they all affect our well-being. And that's outside the realm of traditional medical care. So social prescribing is very simply this intentional approach and a tool to connect the formal healthcare system with social supports that we all need to be healthy. So the idea is to leverage our health providers and other trusted people in the community as an entry point to identify when people have care needs and goals that are beyond medicine, and they can refer them to a dedicated support person that can be called by a variety of different names. So in the UK, they call them link workers. In Canada, we often use the term connectors or community health workers. Hmm. This link person can then have a more in-depth conversation that's focused on what matters to the individual or family and the existing gifts and strength that they bring, and then co-creating a solution together. And that solution could rely on people's own networks or rely on the broader social services and community supports that are most appropriate for their goals. So in a nutshell, social prescribing is really a, a person-centered and community-led approach to integrating health and social care. Give me a couple examples, if you could, of what that would look like on the ground to connect someone with the services that they need. Generally, it could look like a person comes to their primary care provider with their medical challenge. For example, maybe they struggle with mental health, anxiety, and depression. And of course, the medical professional does what they do very well, and they, they can provide diagnosis, they can provide suggestions, they can provide medication, and they may also probe for maybe something else that might be happening. Maybe there are other areas in which this person can be supported and refer them to, to a connector who can then maybe delve in to say maybe they're depressed because they've, they're recently bereaved, or maybe they have caregiving responsibilities, or maybe they're retired and now socially isolated, uh, have moved away from family. And then being able to have a conversation with the person to dive more deeply into what would bring them joy, into what would make their lives better. Hmm. And then the solutions could be anything that ranges from supporting structural issues. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's rent, maybe it's food, to things like a bereavement support group, a coffee club locally, a walk in nature, visiting the museum, and so on. It's so interesting because the stuff you're describing, aside from the, you know, visiting the doctor part for an official diagnosis, sounds like something that we used to just rely on a tight-knit community to do for us that we're now having to formalize. Yeah, absolutely. We know intuitively that we need these social aspects to our well-being. And the challenge is not everyone have access now to that. We are in a very disconnected world right. where people are perhaps in different geographical locations to, to families. Maybe they've moved for various reasons um, and are no longer part of their previous network, or maybe they've retired and lost different networks. And so this is a way to help people who need a bit of a push who need a bit more support or have faced structural barriers to connecting and would benefit from someone who journey alongside them. In practice, with the examples uh, that you've described, and, and you know, we can get into some others as well in a minute, where is the formal structure? I know that your agency uh, does some stuff, but like who, 
who finds these people or finds what they need, who funds it where it costs money. Um, you know, I, I know I know already well enough that our healthcare system is overtaxed. This is a whole different aspect that uh, seems to be made up ad hoc. How does it work? That's a great question. And it looks quite different in different regions across Canada because we're not yet in a place in Canada where we have consistent and standardized investment into this practice. So... In British Columbia and Alberta, for example, Udaiway British Columbia and Healthy Aging Alberta, our two organizations are leading province-wide projects to support older adults to be better connected and age well at home. And these community organizations or the, the network of community organizations in those provinces are connected to primary care organizations where there is this connection and bridging between the pathways where people can be referred and supported. Hmm. Now, in Ontario, it's the primary care teams like community health centers um, with the Alliance for Healthier Communities and St. Mike's academic family health team that are taking up the mantle really and they're focused on improving health equity. So they're predominantly supporting historically marginalized and equity deserving populations. Uh, and for example, they focused on black health, newcomers, mental health, people with um, LGBTQ plus identities and so on. So it varies quite a bit uh, across our landscape. Are there examples of places where it's more formalized and used more extensively? And what can we learn uh, from those places in terms of both practices and outcomes? Yes. Yeah, so in the UK, they have invested in social prescribing as a key pillar of their national health service. So they have over 3,000 link workers at the moment that are available to every GP practice in the country. And they're growing their reach to acute care, to home care, to other areas of their healthcare system. They provide standardized training and competency frameworks. It's taught in every medical school curriculum. This level of investment is, is only a few years old. They're continuing to learn, but it's quite advanced in their recognition that the health system has a responsibility and a role to play in addressing the social aspects of their well-being. And because the healthcare system is in crisis, they don't have enough GPs, mm -hmm. there is significant care provider burnout, and there is skyrocketing cost. And they realize we need a bit of a different solution that can complement our medical care system in the community. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. What do we know about if or how much of that burden social prescribing can take off the primary care system? Obviously, that is a key challenge for Canada as well. And anything that takes the pressure off of primary care and hospitals would be uh, welcome. Yeah, so we have excellent research. So at a large scale, there's been a number of evidence reviews that are done in the UK in recent months that show improvements in an individual's health outcome, which perhaps is not surprising when we think about people being connected and, and viewed in this holistic way. But they also found 
an average of a 28% reduction in demand for GP visits following social prescribing referrals Hmm. and around a 24% decrease in emergency hospital admissions. So those are huge cost savings to our system, not only on on the financial cost, but also on things like wait times and on um, people's burden of care. And, you know, in the U.S., loneliness and social isolation is associated with an uh, estimate of $6.7 billion in additional Medicare spending annually. Hmm. We don't have those numbers in Canada, but I don't think we would be too different from the U.S. and the U.K. in this regard. So we, we have an urgency to act and there is strong evidence that this can be a strong tool in the toolbox for us. You've given a couple of great examples of connecting people to a community where uh, they can feel in touch uh, with the fellow people around them, which is awesome, which is, uh, I know is one of the main aspects of this, but I'm also fascinated by the idea of uh, unconventional prescriptions for joy. Can you give me a couple of examples of of what you might suggest to folks who might feel like, why am I getting a prescription for this? But then they follow it and realize. Yeah, so that that happens quite often where people are initially suspicious. You know, I come to you for... I expect a pill. I expect uh, a medical solution. Yeah, you're going to send me to therapy or something or a group therapy <laughs> yeah, or something like that. And instead... Absolutely. And so people have have been surprised. So for example, um, physical activity is a, a common prescription, right? Even in a traditional medicine for things like chronic illnesses or diabetes, for example. But what we found um, in research is that when people are connected to, for example, yoga classes or things like that, it's partly it's the physical activity, but what actually really makes a difference in their health and perceived quality of life is that they've now been connected to a group of people. Hmm. So that's one example of the sort of surprising impact where you can have these conversations. The other, in Toronto and Ottawa, for example, we have very strong connections with arts and cultural organizations. And so we have been fortunate in these areas to see prescriptions for things like museum visits, for art making, for music, that have a surprising impact on people's health and their well-being and gives them a sense of reprieve or being able to open themselves to something that's different. What are we still looking for in Canada to spread this practice more widely, especially if we know it has a positive impact? Um, where do we need what and, uh, and how close are we uh, to getting it? Well, our hope is to see the same level of investment across Canada that we are seeing in the UK. It is a little bit more challenging for us because we don't have a national health system in the same way, and our health system is governed by provinces. Right. But those are also opportunities. As many provinces are not going through healthcare transformations, it's a a wonderful window for social prescribing to be built in as just the way things are. So not the pilots, not the different grassroots efforts, which are really wonderful, but to be sustained in the way in which we we view our health and we expect our care to be delivered. We've recently commissioned KPMG to perform a social and economic impact analysis on social prescribing in the Canadian context. So we hope that will be finalized in February and be a useful tool for our policymakers. And we're working to develop um, with our network of partners, the knowledge products and education, training, and research that we need to better equip people to do this work. 
Uh, we are very familiar here, I think anybody who accesses Canada's medical system, with the limitations it can have as the system is overtaxed or maybe underfunded. Okay. And I know that uh, while this approach sounds incredibly useful to a lot of people, um, it, it might potentially be very difficult for them to access currently. So I guess what I want to learn from you and our listeners to learn from you is how can people uh, who are interested in this concept find ways to approach it uh, on their own or in their own communities without a formal prescription? But people don't need to wait for health providers. I mean, they are the knowledge holders of what is most important to their well-being and the well-being of their community. So we always encourage people to ask themselves, what matters to you? What brings you joy? And who or what can help with that? We have a map on our website of all the social prescribing initiatives that we currently know of in Canada. And people might actually live close to one without knowing. And for others who are not sure what support might be available to them or they want to volunteer to help create those solutions in their community, 211 is an excellent resource for information and referral. And, and many physicians do refer to that. And people can call 211 from their phones. They can check it out on the website. Um, and there's also um, a national friendly calls program with the Canadian Red Cross for people who are looking to connect virtually. How does that vary across the country? Because I imagine it must be uh, a lot easier to connect uh, with a group of people in, say, downtown Toronto than um, in smaller rural areas. Our experience is actually a little bit of an opposite. So there is definitely a lot of resources in big cities. At the same time, people can feel very disconnected. Mm -hmm. And it's perhaps it's an overwhelming choice to find what fits. Whereas in smaller communities, there tends to be just the two places, perhaps, that people can go that are offering services, and they become this one-stop shop. And it's actually much easier to build the connections and referral pathways and work together in a coordinated way in, in that way. And so there are, there are different challenges in different places. And so this has to be community-led, essentially, because the nature of each community, the asset that exists and the gap that exists in each community is so varied across Canada mm -hmm. that our goal is to help communities develop a solution that works for them within a structured approach that supports people to do things in a way that assures the quality and the impact. Sonia, thank you so much for this. And just once again for people, um, where's the website? How can they access it if they want to get involved in this for themselves? The website is socialprescribing.ca and uh, there's also contact information. There are resources to access and there's community of practice for people who want to be connected into this type of work. All right. Thanks again. This is a fascinating concept. Thank you so much. Sonia Shung, Director of the Canadian Institute for Social Prescribing. That was The Big Story. You want more? Head to thebigstorypodcast.ca I give you a prescription to listen to a bunch of episodes. Will you do it? Please? All right. If you want to give us feedback about this episode or any other episode that we've ever recorded, you can do it. You can just email us. We're at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, you can call us and leave a voicemail. 416-935-5935 is that number. The Big Story is available in absolutely every podcast player. And of course, it's on a smart speaker. If you have one, try asking it to play the Big Story podcast. And if it doesn't give it to you, 
Use those feedback options I just mentioned and let us know so that we could do something about it. Because if you're in Canada and you say that, it should work. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon is also a producer. Though, they were off this week and we were joined by the lovely Aaron Pettit. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Sound design this week was done by Mark Angley and Robin Edgar. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. Together, that makes us Frequency Podcast Network, which is a division of Rogers. And I am your executive producer and your host, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thanks, as always, for listening. We've got an episode of In This Economy for you tomorrow. If you listen to our episode on birth rate this week, tomorrow's episode of In This Economy explains why nobody can afford to have kids. So stick around for that. And again, thanks for listening. We'll talk again Monday.